Hi, this is the, uh, the Cloud9 uh, podcast. It's Michael Hansen here from CloudTask uh, with a very special guest today, also in Europe, um, David Masova. Uh, over to you, David, so to introduce yourself. Oh, thanks. So, yeah, David Masover, I'm a B2B sales consultant, do a lot of coaching, work mostly with small and medium sized businesses. Uh, I've been accused of being a process guy. Uh, there's some truth to that. I like to start working with clients, whether it's an individual or whether it's a company, by asking the basic questions, you know? What do you help people with? And, and why is that a big problem? And just all of these kind of basic fundamental things. And then we build up into the big picture. And that's, uh, it's fun for me and it seems to work for my clients. So it's all good. Awesome. Yeah, that word uh, process is sometimes... Uh... A dirty word. What do, what do you say to people that you know aren't process driven, or say, "Oh, I hate process people. They don't get anything done." Yeah, I just try to frame it a different way. I mean, I've tried you. There was a time when process was an even dirtier word than it is now. You know, there's kind of like this process versus relationship people. Uh, process doesn't matter. The buyer process is what matters. The relationship is everything. It's not as bad now because there's a lot of tech out there, and tech requires process. So I tried using a word like framework. But, you know, people saw right through that. Um, what I think really helps if, if somebody has a resistance to the concept of process is talking about it as what it is, which is just what do you do? You know, what are the steps? If you, if you, if you talk about I need to make sales, that's just this huge thing. Like, how do you even get your arms around that? But if you break it down, you know, what do I need to do first? And how should I be thinking about it? And how should I do it? And what does that lead to? And how do I transition? And what do I do next? then people can really get their heads around it. And that's when you spring the trap, like, ha, that's process, right? You know, you bought into it. So I think if you just talk about it as, what is it that you need to do to get sales, then it really resonates no matter what you call it. Awesome. Um, obviously, you've, you know, you've got a lot of um, experience in the sales world um, doing consulting. So sales has obviously evolved a lot, um, you know, over the last five, 10, 20 years. What, how have you seen the, the kind of process of sales um, evolve? You know, I think that's a really, really interesting question. I don't think I have a perfect answer for that. Um, I hear people talk all the time about sales has changed. And I typically find that the things that I wind up doing with my clients are around the things that haven't changed. I mean, I think the tech and the tools have changed. How we do our work has changed. Where we do our work has changed. To me, it feels like the fundamentals of what really makes sales work hasn't, you know? So when I work with clients, we go really deep on what problem do you solve? And a lot of people think they know what that is. Most of them don't. And I don't think that's changed in, in you know, all of the time that sales has been around. They, they say that sales is the second oldest profession in the world, right? And we don't want to get into what the, what the first is. I mean, that's just another sales job. So I don't want to have that conversation. But I think the basic fundamentals, right? Like you need something. I have something. Let's have a conversation about it and see if it makes sense. I think there's a lot around selling that, that it just focuses there. Yeah. And that we have to dial more people to get into as many conversations. Yes, that has changed, Right. I was cold calling in the 90s, the early 90s, and the conversion ratios of dials to conversations to meetings was much lower, right? Like I had to make much fewer calls than people seem to make now. But like, is that a really a fundamental change? I don't think so, right? You have a tool that kind of compensates for that. 
and then you wind up getting into as many conversations. People have, you know, people say that 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 uh, buyers have more information and less time. I don't know. I don't ever remember a time when buyers just, you know, threw open their doors and welcomed me with huge love because I was the only guy that had the information they needed. So I don't know. I think it's a tricky question. What do you think? You know, what do you think has changed in sales? Yeah. Well, I think it's very interesting this, what you just said about the stat, you know, about how um, when someone talks with a salesperson, they're like uh, 80% of the way through the journey. And I actually just wrote um, a LinkedIn post about, um, you know, be, always be careful of stats because one, stats are often focused on certain industries, so they may not be relevant to what you, you're doing yourself. Um, and then, yeah, I also think that, as you said, it wasn't like, you know, 30 years ago, it was really easy to be a salesman. It was just like, bang, like you just signed a contract because the buyer trusted you. I think people have always been skeptical about, you know, so-called salespeople. Um, and I think one of the ways sales has evolved is that salespeople are becoming less almost salespeople and becoming like consultants, you know. Um, and I was actually talking um, to a guy called Dan Tyre, um, who's what was one of the first staff at HubSpot. Watch them. He was saying that actually, said the new salesperson is um, more introvert. Um, obviously, salespeople used to always be extrovert, and I think because it's that more consultative approach, where you're kind of yeah being an expert in in what you're doing for the client. And as you said, I think everything starts with the problem. So I think if you're an expert in the problem of your customer um that's the key basically and that that's kind of the modern sales person you don't have to be the most extrovert person in the world but you have to be an expert in your customer and their pain points and what they do well you know i i think that's funny because you know in the 90s when i started selling i had my first sales job in 1991 i took that approach and, and the people around me were taking that approach. So I sometimes feel like when people say change, sales has changed enormously, they're comparing it to like something they saw in a movie in 1950, right? And, and I'm like, listen, I've been around for three decades. And first of all, I think the consultative approach has been around for that long. Spin selling was written, I don't know, I think it was in the 90s. I might be wrong about that, but it was around that time when people were starting to think about, you know, how do I ask good questions and how do I make sure that the, you know, the customer's telling me what's going on with them so that I can suggest a solution. It wasn't like I'm going to, you know, hit them with a pitch and then the alternative, you know, choice close, right? I mean, like, that's like so old school. It's before my time and I've been around for a long time. So I, I kind of pushed back against that a little bit. I think what's interesting is that we've known about how to be professional consultative salespeople for a very long time. And it still seems like there's an enormous number of people that don't get it. Yeah. That's the part that I find strange. Yeah. That's, I like, honestly, I don't know how to get my head around that. Yeah. Why? People know what the right thing to do is. The information is there. And yet you hear so often about really bad sales approaches that do sound like the 1950s in spite of the learnings, the enlightenment, the technology, the tools, the sales enablement, et cetera. It's LinkedIn and all the wonderful content that's there. So to me, that's the disconnect. Not, not that sales has changed, but that a lot of salespeople and a lot of sales organizations haven't. Yeah. No, and I mean, you mentioned it there as well. Probably, I think you have more of a right to answer that question because you've been, you've been in sales for longer. Because um, I'm old, right? <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead. You can say it. It's cool. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, what, one of the things you were talking about as well was, you know, calling. Um, so obviously, which is obvious to anyone, like people are answering their phones less, they're more on, you know, digital channels. Um, and because of that, some people are saying, you know, that cold calling is dead. Um, what do you think of that? I think that's stupid. I mean, I do. I, I know a lot of people who cold call and it works. I know a lot of people who hate cold calling and they find something else. I mean, ultimately the job is you got to get into conversations with people that might buy your stuff. And then there's a whole lot of other things that you have to do. And, and these people who are like, ah, it's got to be social or it's got to be digital or it's got to be inbound or it's got to be cold calling. That's just dumb because there's people who make all of those different things work. And there's different industries and different scenarios where a different tool or a technique or an approach might be appropriate. I, I just think it doesn't make sense to kind of eliminate a category or, or, or dismiss a category. I have plenty of clients that cold call and they do it effectively. I have plenty of clients who cold call and can't get traction until they work with me, of course, and then they're, they're miraculous. Just kidding. Cold calling isn't for everybody, right? I mean, it takes a certain tenacity to be successful with cold calling. And if you're not good at it, it's like, okay, so what else can I do? Yeah. So I, I don't really buy that. No, no, I'm, I'm 100% with you as well. And I think it just depends on, on your buyers. And, you know, I've worked with various, you know, sales reps at CloudTask. Some of them are getting half of their appointments calling. Others don't really do it because they don't need to because they're using LinkedIn and email. Um, so I think it really, yeah, just analyze where your buyers are. If they are on their phones all the time, then, yeah, call. Like, for example, our profession, sales, I think the phone is amazing because most of the time salespeople are waiting for a call to come in because they think they're going to get a deal, not, you know, someone's going to pitch right. them. Maybe that's the one I've been waiting for, right? <laughs> I think always, yeah, just have, have the buyer in mind. I think people can be, yeah, small-minded with channels like, oh, LinkedIn doesn't work, phone doesn't work, email doesn't work, but it's just, you know, use the channels where your buyers are at the end of the day. I think the question is, you know, how do I make something work? If people, if, if people have demonstrated that something can work, then figure it out. And if you don't like it, figure something else out. I, I think a lot of that stuff is just an excuse or it's somebody trying to sell something. Yeah. Yeah, and I think as well, even if even if it's a cold call as such, I think with the information we have nowadays, you can make it not a cold call because you can go on someone's LinkedIn, see yeah. what they've studied, see what their hobbies are, see their work experience. So, you know, in your first 30 seconds, you build rapport that way. Suddenly, it's not a cold call. You know, suddenly the, the buyer trusts you a bit more. Yeah, and you know, some people have activity metrics or just kind of activity dynamics that require that they, they're dialing the phone a lot and their research is limited. Like, I need 30 seconds. I'm going to look at their website. I'm going to look at LinkedIn. I'm going to get on the phone. Might get them, might not, but want to have some little nugget if I do. I think that's one level of warming up a cold call. There's, you know, that's what we used to call it back in the day. I don't, know if they, I don't know if you crazy kids still call it that now, but warming up a cold call, right? Yeah. But you know, there's other things you can do too. I mean, I, I think that's one of the great things about content on LinkedIn. Uh, I've started to do content on LinkedIn a lot more. And I wind up getting into conversations with some of the people that engage with my content. And some of those conversations turn into business and some of them don't. But, you know, so that's also a prospecting method. And it's very warm because by the time we get on the phone, you know, we, we've interacted with each other. I've got a couple of calls later today that are going to be like that guy I've never spoken to before. And we've already got a history. Uh, that dynamic doesn't work for people who sell certain things in certain industries with you know, certain deal sizes, et cetera. But I think that's the trick of it. Everyone's got a different situation. So let's just look at that and say, okay, what's the best way to get from here to there 
or what's the best half dozen ways to get from here to there and how can I execute them consistently so I can I can meet my numbers I mean it's not easy but it doesn't have to be complicated yeah hundred percent yeah and I think also when we're talking about channels if you master one channel it can help you and another there's, there's a guy called Daniel Disney who um, probably the top uh, social seller now on LinkedIn in the UK and he was also telling me, you know, that he used to be like a door salesman back in the day, which night he was literally like knocking on people's doors. And we were talking about times to reach people. And he said, equally, like I said, you know, getting CEOs first thing in the morning or, you know, after 5 p.m. is a good tactic because they're not busy with their day to day. And he was saying it was the same when he was doing door selling. People were scared to knock on people's doors at 7 p.m., but he wasn't and he had success. So right. you, know, you can actually take learning from one channel and put it onto another. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the consistent, the, the consistent mechanism here is that, you know, you're selling to people and, and if the people need what you, what you have, and if you can find a way to, to, to engage and click and start the conversation, you're off to the races. And, and, and to think that there's, there's only one way to do that. And to think that people are different in one place than they are in another. I, I think that's kind of limiting. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, moving on to, I want to talk a little bit about coaching because I know that's um, one of your, your specialities for, you know, some of our listeners who, you know, like sales managers, managing teams of business development reps, what are your top tips for, you know, coaching in, in 2019? So top tip is do it, right? Not enough people are coaching their people one-on-one. -on -one. They're not spending enough time doing it. I mean, I, I, I don't want to quote studies that, that I, but you know, you just seem to hear this stuff again and again and again, that when, when frontline managers take the time to coach one-on-one, -on -one, that's when they have a great relationship with their reps. That's when their reps feel like, you know, somebody's got their back. That's when they're willing to, to, to really do their work. And, and most people want to learn and get better. So, so, you know, top tip is like, just do it, find the time. And I think it's hard for managers because these days, modern sales managers have so many tasks and responsibilities and metrics and KPIs and dashboards and meetings. It's tough to find the time, but make the time to do that. If your goal is to make your team more effective, which is what your goal should be, make the time to coach. Then people run into the problem of, okay, but how, like, what am I supposed to do? And, and going back to what I talked about earlier, that whole process thing, I think that's where the process can really help. I look at sales process, a properly, um, properly constructed with enough detail and accurate sales process as a really great mechanism for coaching. So if the salesperson is really clear about what they're supposed to be doing uh, on a step-by-step -step basis, and the manager also has that same clarity on that same process, there's agreement about like, okay, here's the sequence of things that's supposed to happen, that becomes the medium for a conversation. And sales coaching can be as easy as looking at a single deal and walking through those stages, finding out where it's at, or looking, you know, hopefully you have some kind of a tool or a dashboard or something that lets you look at all of the deals and say, okay, so in aggregate, kind of where are you in terms of, 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 of your full current book of business flowing through this pipeline process, sequence, whatever. So, you know, I think when you get clarity about process within your organization and it's a shared clarity among all the reps and between the reps and whoever is doing the coaching and you have a tool that can support that, I think that lays the foundation for a really effective sales organization. And I just don't see that enough. I, I almost never see that happening. So, you know, 
do the coaching and set it up properly, that'll take you a really long way. Yeah, for sure. What, what do you think about, I've, I've seen a lot of this, um, yeah, especially on LinkedIn, um, you know, coaching from the front, kind of leading by example. Um, so, you know, f- for example, I've seen a lot of people complaining that, you know, sales coaches and managers, they're asking their, their reps to do 100 calls a day, but they're not doing any calls themselves. Um, so what do you think about that? Do you think, you know, the coaches should be leading by example, doing, doing calls themselves? Yes and no. I think that that, I, I think that for some people that can be motivating. I think for some coaches, they want to do that. I think that where there's a disconnect is when a lot of coaches think that coaching is, is counting, you know, uh, you know, you need to do more of this. You need to do less of this. You know, um, I, I, I see crazy stuff out there, right? Like there's tools that will analyze what people are saying on the phone and you know, people will think they're coaching when they say, uh, you know, the, the AI says that you're not asking enough of this, or, you know, you're talking too much, or, you know, this percentage of that. I don't want to say that stuff is baloney, but I'm going to anyway, because I I think that stuff can be useful, right? If it's in context, but I think there's too many managers where that's all they're doing. They're counting how many dials, what percentage of this, you know, how many of that. And I think that if you do that to a rep who's out there in the trenches, they're going to resent it. Yes. I'm doing coaching with people who are not in my organization, right? So they don't know what I do. They don't know if I ever pick up the phone. And yet I get traction with them because I'm talking to them about what they are doing. And I'm talking to them about how they are doing it. And I'm doing it in a way that it resonates and they can feel that I've done it. And I'm not asking them questions about like, you know, what's this number? What's that number? What's this ratio? We may get there as we dig deep into something, you know, but the point I'm trying to make is I think leading from the front is great. I don't think it's necessary. If somebody likes that, it's fine. I think where reps disconnect from managers who are trying to coach, it's when what the managers are doing isn't coaching. It's counting. When you're coaching effectively and you're, you're, you're really engaging with the person you're coaching with, I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. But if that connection is genuine and if the rep, uh, the rep or you know, whoever you're coaching can really feel that, I think that's more important than whether or not they're leading from the front, leading from the back, leading from behind you know, or the side or whatever. Yeah. don't know if that answers your question, but that's my take on it. No, it does. I, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant point as well. And I think it's not just with this. I think there's so much emphasis on technology now um, that I think technology is great when you combine it with a human approach. But if you were just like, hey, these are your numbers. This is what the technology says. Learn from it. You know, it's not, it's not going to be useful. Whereas if you say, hey, this rep was, say the technology says he talked too much, because I think there's technologies now that do that. And you can say, yeah. hey, it says you talk too much. This is what I would recommend to cut out is using the, t- the two together. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. I posted on that yesterday about, you know, tech is great, but you know, without the skills and the processes and the culture, you know, it's not great. Tech is there to, to support sales efforts, not yeah. to, to, not, not to substitute for them. You can't throw a bunch of tech at somebody and think like, you know, here's your tech, here's your playbook, go for it. Right. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of companies that do that. And, and I think that they, they, they struggle more than they need to. Yeah. yeah so obviously technology and, and software is a, an interesting component of, of what you do as well. 
Um, so in terms of both sales coaching and sales processes, what types of tech technology do you recommend that, that sales coaches and managers are using and how do you think they should be using them? Yeah, it, you know, I, I'm going to give an answer that's maybe a little bit out of left field. Um, you know, like to me, it just doesn't matter. And I say that with a caveat, right? I mean, obviously there's better tech, there's worse tech, blah, blah, blah. But I, I think the mistake people make is that they lead with the tech. I think if you start by those basic questions that I, that I have mentioned already twice in this short conversation, and that I keep coming back to with my clients, when you start there, and when you kind of nail down the what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to do it, and then go look for a piece of tech that supports it, you're gonna make a good choice. But if you start with, hey, you know, I read this blog from this guy who's crushing it and we should buy that tech and like jam it into our organization and, you know, let our reps run with it because that was a really cool blog post, you know, then it doesn't matter what the tech is and it's not about the tech. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually used this line in my post yesterday and it really resonated with a lot of people. The tech is agnostic. You know, the tech will be applied to a, a sales organization that is either strong or weak or somewhere in between. And that will have a big impact on how the tech works. I mean, I think, you know, salespeople should be spending time in their CRM and their CRM should support the way that they work. But most CRM deployments are terrible because they don't match up to what the salespeople really do in the field. So yeah. it just becomes this thing that they have to use in addition to what they're doing to really sell. And that has nothing to do with the CRM, right? So that's kind of where I sit on tech. If it's the second set of questions, you'll probably wind up with a good relationship with your technology. If it's the first set of questions, uh, it's probably just going to be a source of friction for everybody because the reps aren't going to want to use it. And management, if, if, if what they want out of it is insight and visibility, they aren't going to get it because the reps aren't using it because it doesn't match up to what they really do. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, so another thing I wanted to talk about with, with you, David, obviously, um, you know, you're, you're based in Europe, uh, but you work a lot with, with US customers. What are the differences you've seen both, you know, kind of in culture and sales and, and generally in business between, you know, Europe and, and the US? Yeah, I, I think there are differences. Um, I, I, I'm an American. People listening can probably tell that. I moved to Europe 14 years ago. Actually, sorry. Wow, what's the date today? It's like 15 years ago, you know, Monday. So I've been here 15 years now. And I, and I came here with that question, right? Like, what's the difference? And there are differences. And certainly there are differences between the European countries, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, different countries, different cultures and all that. But like the earlier question, I think you know, where the rubber meets the road is, is in sales. Most people are struggling with the things that are the same. You know, in, in, in Europe, it's a little bit more formal. In America, it's a little bit more casual. Uh, in, in America, you could say that uh, the Americans would say that they're more optimistic. The, the, the Europeans would say that they're a little bit, you know, more unrealistic. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of a tomato, tomato kind of a thing. You know, everyone's got their own perspective on it. But where I wind up working with people and, and having a big impact, the work is the same. And yeah. we even talk about it the same. So whether somebody's in India or Germany or, or the UK or the US or the West Coast or, or you know, the center of the States, there are cultural differences. There are differences between industries. But most people aren't struggling with those things. Most people know what their culture is. Most people know how to operate 
effectively within their culture. And I think the things that make a difference in sales effectiveness yeah. are pretty universal across that. I mean, I think a lot of people, I, I can't tell you how many times I get asked this, like, you know, like, what should I say? And you even see it on LinkedIn, like, here's a template, right? And the, and the thing explodes. I want to know what to write in my emails. And I want to know what to say when I'm on the phone. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you know what? Those things are important. But it, it's, it's kind of your mentality and your philosophy that supports what you're writing and how you're saying it that's gonna make the difference. Yeah. And then you have to choose the words that fit your culture. It's not gonna be the magic words. It's, it's where your head is at about what is it that I'm doing here? How is it that I'm doing it? Why am I doing it? What do I need to do? How is it effective? Whatever culture you're in, those are the questions that matter. Yeah, no, I totally agree on that point. I've even noticed that on LinkedIn, obviously kind of LinkedIn is brought, you know, very widely used in the UK. And the US, yeah, still the adoption, maybe probably in some countries, maybe like Eastern Europe, not as much. But I've noticed that obviously on LinkedIn, you can see anyone and the posts are quite similar, whether they're from, you know, like a Daniel Disney in the UK or they're from like a John Barrows in the US. The posts, you know, it's always quite similar stuff and it's stuff that you can, you can apply. As you said, there's maybe like cultural nuances about a spelling or a word, but that's not really the stuff that matters. The stuff that matters is you know, as you said, the process, the coaching, your messaging. So, um, and that, that's universal. So sales has become like McDonald's then. <laughs> sales. It's the same everywhere, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, one of the things I, I wanted to speak to you about, the uh, amazing thing about David is he is also an author. Um, so there's, I know he's written various books, but the one that caught my attention the most was uh, one that talks about sales and dating because it's, it's an analogy we've made at CloudTask many times ourselves. Um, so yeah, what, what, what's the link you see between sales and dating? You know, it's funny. I've written three books. I've written a bunch of eBooks, but the salesman's guide to dating was the first book idea that I ever had. And I I'll tell you, I'll tell you the origin story. Uh, it, it's short, but it's, you know, it, it's just very real. Uh, it was, it was kind of uh, mid nineties and I was kind of at that point in my sales career where I'd figured it out and pedal was to the metal and I was crushing it. And, but I was working a lot. Uh, you know, I was working 10, 11, 12 hour days, not uncommon, right? A lot of people do. I was just at that point in my career and I didn't have a girlfriend and I kind of wanted to have a girlfriend because, you know, listen, it's nice. Right. So I remember sitting at my desk, I was at home working from home one evening, kind of catching up on paperwork and stuff. And I remember sitting there at my desk going, you know, wouldn't it be great if I was like out on a date right now, but I have no time. How am I going to do that? And I remember so clearly I leaned back in my chair, put down my pen and I said, you know what? I just need a better lead source. And, and that's when the idea hit me. And, you know, the whole thing just kind of like flooded out in front of me. It's like, okay, so, you know, get a good lead source. And, and how do I get into the first conversation? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you can geek out on it, but the analogies are really similar. I'm actually writing another ebook right now, and I'm using a dating analogy again, which is, you know, in sales and dating, ultimately, you know, all you can do is, is, is what you say and what you do. And, and, and the idea is to kind of, you know, have the other person come along with you on a journey. And in this way, the two things are just inherently similar. So yeah, I've written a lot of books, but that's the one that jumps out at people. So it's, it's funny that you bring that up. It's still free on Amazon. So, you know, check it out. It's a fun, fast read and leave a review and I hope you enjoy it. But yeah, thanks for bringing that up. What's your, uh, what's your number one lead source for dating then? 
I'm married, so you know. I can't. For those those out there who are dating at the moment, what's the, what, what was the best lead source when you wrote that book? Well, you know, when I when I wrote the book, uh, well, when I had the idea, it was the early '90s, and you know, that was just when the internet was kind of starting to take off. And you know, the internet was great because the internet for dating was kind of like connect and sell. You know, you'd go to a you'd go to a dating site. And you'd scroll through and you'd find someone that was interesting. And you just send everybody the same general message, slightly personalized, right? And then some percentage wrote back. And then you got into an engagement and you eliminated some of them. So yeah, it's a funnel, right? And, and, and it, it sounds very callous to think about it that way. But it's accurate, right? Like when you look at someone's page on a dating site, you don't know very much but you know enough to say yes or no. And then you engage a little bit. And it's, it's just the same as, 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 um, as sales. So, you know, I, I don't know that I'm any kind of a, of a Casanova or dating advice guy, but, but when I was really looking for someone that was a, a dating lead source that, that, that seemed pretty consistent with what I was doing in my business life as well. And, and it had a good result for me. What you mentioned about going through, kind of looking at the profile, sending them a message, and it just sounds like LinkedIn to me. It's just a social selling on LinkedIn, but back, back in the 90s. Yeah, look, I'm not advocating that anybody does their dating on LinkedIn. If anyone misinterpreted me, I'm saying right now, like, don't do that. You know, people don't seem to like that, but, you know, right. the dating websites, you know, but like they, people show up there for, for, because they want to date, right? So, yeah. you know, it's a qualified lead. You, you start with a qualified lead. So that was my, that was the lead source that I found after my big revelation. Yeah, it's, it's funny actually because I, I had a comment on one of my posts the other day where I was I was talking about um, once you've kind of sent a proposal over and uh, you don't need to be you know so on the ball kind of obviously when a lead comes in you need to be contacting them straight away but once you're at the bottom of the funnel you don't need to respond so quickly and someone uh, actually wrote that you should always match what your buyer's doing. So like if they take a day to respond, you take a day to respond. And she, she also said, that's how I do it in dating as well. I, I match whatever they do. So I thought that was quite fun. Um, so uh, yeah, what about, um, what about your other two books as, as well, David? Um, what, what kind of, well, I think more than what, what, what your other two books are, I think what would be interesting for, for our audience is knowing like, how did you, how did, how did the whole idea come into your head? Like, okay, I'm going to write a book. Um, you know, what, what was the process of that? So it, you know, both, all three of my books, this is going to sound funny. All three of my books are about the same thing. I'm a one trick pony. And when I first started selling in 1991, I was terrible. I mean, I really was, I could not have been worse. There was no one in my family that had done sales. Uh, I posted about this a couple of weeks ago. I was thrown into a commodity sales job with no training, staring at the phone, not knowing what to do. But I was just super stubborn. And I, I, I just didn't want to let sales beat me. So I decided I'm going to figure this thing out. And figuring it out meant instead of, like I said earlier, instead of looking at sales as this kind of big thing, I said, okay, you know, what do I need to do first? And, and, and how do I do that? And, and, you know, why should I reach out to this person instead of that person? I just kind of broke down this big thing called sales into these little modules. I, the way I tell the story is I invented the sales process. I, you know, someone else had already done it. I just didn't know that. So I invented the sales process for myself. And by breaking it down this way, 
I was able to really look at each little step, how to do it well, how to connect it to the next one, how to, you know, build momentum as it went, how to do the early things well so that they supported the later things. And over time, I just became a really good salesperson because I was disciplined and effective in, in executing that. I became a good sales manager because as a manager, I walked my team through the same process. I do the same thing when I write books, when I give speeches, a lot of times it's about that kind of a topic, when I'm consulting, when I'm coaching someone from another organization. So, you know, the problem is I'm just a really simple guy. Like that worked for me and I've been writing it for 30 years, asking those fundamental questions and mastering your sales process, my first book, was just a, 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 an, an attempt to capture that in a way that I could just share it with more people. But that's what that book is about, is building that process. Managing the sales process, the second book, is about taking that same process as a manager and using that as the vehicle for coaching, as, as we talked about earlier. And then the Salesman's Guide to Dating is just kind of a fun, playful way of, of going through the same process using an analogy. But ultimately, I'm just a simple, boring guy. You know, here's a thing that's really worked well for me and the people who I've, I've worked with. And, uh, you know, I just want to share that with people because sales is psychologically difficult. And when you don't do it well, people suffer. People suffer. And if you can figure out how to do it better, it's better for the rep. It's better for the customer. It's better for the company. And, you know, when people ask me what my why is, I go back to staring at that phone in 1991 and thinking, you know, that was a bad feeling. Yeah. And if I can keep people from having that feeling, I, I think I've been successful. Yeah. It's nice to get paid sometimes too, but you know, that's also really nice. Yeah, no, so I, th I think uh, you kind of summarized it at the end there. So I guess you, you'd accumulated all this knowledge and you were like, you'd wanted to share it with other people because you thought that knowledge could educate other people basically. Yep. Awesome. Um, so last question for you, David. Uh, so I, and this is another one I, I wrote about recently, um, just because you mentioned there, you know, at the start, you, you weren't successful, 91, you were like staring at the phone, it wasn't going your way. What's the main trait that you think makes a successful salesperson if there is one? Well, in my case, it was just being stubborn, but I don't know that I would suggest that to other people. I, gosh, you know what? I don't know that I've ever considered that question. Um, I remember there was a time, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of years ago when, when this whole idea of sales personality was, was, was really being debated a lot. And I was always in the camp to push back against that because I think if you've been in sales long enough, you've seen that there are people with certain personality types and the people with personality type X, some of them succeed and some of them fail. And the people with personality traits, why some of them succeed and some of them fail. So I think if there's, if there's one thing, it's gotta be that someone just really wants to succeed and, and does what it takes to succeed and then puts in the time to just work through that process. Dave Curlin, who, who is a guy who writes a lot on, on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dave Curlin. He talks about two things. One is um, what he calls the figure it out factor. You know, somebody who can just kind of like jump into a situation and figure it out. That's really strong. That's really important. You have to be able to do that. But even more than that, uh, Dave taught me early in my career that <clears throat> it's the people that have the desire to succeed in sales, not the desire to succeed in general, but the desire to succeed in sales and the commitment to do what it takes to get there. 
if people have those two traits, then he's what he, he calls that coachable. If somebody really wants to win and is going to do what it takes, then there's a chance they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to get it figured out. So yeah. I'm not a big fan of, of kind of labeling and compartmentalizing, but I think those observations are pretty true. And I've certainly seen an awful lot of that in my career. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I like that, that word you mentioned coachable and it's a question we get asked a lot at Cloudsource, like, what do you look for in your salespeople? Um, and we always, yeah, one of the things I always say is coachability um, and that they're humble as well. And they're listening, they're willing to listen to others and constantly learn. And I think, you know, even the best of us, you know, the best salespeople in the world, they're still continuously learning. If anything, they're learning more than anyone else every day, which is why they're the best. Because, you know, sales is changing so much every day. If we're not learning, you know, we're, we're not going to succeed. Absolutely. All right. Awesome, David. Well, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for jumping on, uh, on the show. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll be speaking soon. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Cheers.